morning, church. It is great to be with you guys uh, again on another Sunday morning. If you guys have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Matthew uh, chapter 13. We are going to be there, and then we're going to jump somewhere else, and then we're going to go back to it, and then we're going to jump somewhere else. So be ready to be kind of flipping through your Bibles. So Matthew 13, what we're going to be looking at is why does Jesus teach in parables? So last week, if you were with us or if you weren't with us, we kind of did an introductory look at what parables are, what Jesus does with parables, and namely, that is to teach um, about the kingdom of God. You know, though there were some throughout history that have claimed that these were just kind of open-ended stories, enigmatic thought concepts that Jesus was just trying to be thought-provoking, Uh, We saw that last week that parables aren't for that purpose, that with each parable, Jesus is making exclusive points. He is teaching definitive points. But we all kind of admitted last week as we were kind of talking and walking through this that even though Jesus is making these specific points, at times we read through the parables and we are kind of like, okay, what, what is this point? I see the story, but I don't quite understand what Jesus is saying. They're difficult, and they've been notoriously difficult. And because they've been difficult, we kind of saw that they have been mishandled throughout history. Which leads us to the question of why. Why does Jesus choose to teach in parables? If they are these difficult sayings, if they're not always as clear as we want them to be, why does Jesus not teach like he does in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount all the time, which is a little bit more clear. Why, why does he choose to use these parables which seem to be a little bit concealing in nature? Well, if you've ever thought about these questions, you are not alone. In fact, the apostles themselves thought about these questions. In fact, every single synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all say that when Jesus teaches in parables, the apostles kind of have a question to Jesus as to why he does this. And so we're going to see that. If you guys turn your Bibles to Matthew 13, we're going to see this interaction where Jesus is going to teach in a parable and the question is going to come from the apostles. But before we jump into Matthew 13, we kind of need to understand the context of what's going on, uh, specifically in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, we learn that there is a growing excitement about this Jesus in the region of Galilee. Word on the street is, if you hang around Jesus for long enough, you're either going to see something extremely exciting with the work of a miracle, you're going to hear some exciting teaching, or there's going to be some type of conflict with the religious leaders of the day. And wouldn't you know, Matthew chapter 12 records for us two different conflicts that Jesus has with these Pharisees, and they're concerning the the nature of the Sabbath. And the first one is that Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field, and they're hungry, and they go, and it's a Sabbath day, and as they're walking through a field, they kind of grab grain, and they start eating and plucking and kind of feeding their bellies with this. And so the Pharisees confront Jesus, and they confront his apostles, and they say, you're breaking the Sabbath. And so Jesus kind of turns the table on them. They're not breaking the Sabbath. The Pharisees have a misunderstanding of what the Sabbath is. And Jesus says that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he kind of flips the script on them. And if you read the Gospels enough, you'll see that Jesus does this often with the Pharisees. And every time Jesus does this with them, they 
they hate it. They get more irritated with him and they start to be a little bit more envious of him and his power and his authority. Well, there's another conflict that happens in chapter 12. And these Pharisees and religious leaders think that they're really clever. They're trying to point Jesus or pin him in a corner in this no-win situation. And so they have this guy who has a withered hand. He's, he's an invalid. He's not been able to use his hands. And so they bring him to Jesus. And of course, wouldn't you know, they bring him to Jesus on a Sabbath. They could have done it any other day, but they decide to do so on a Sabbath. And as they present this man to Jesus, they ask him the question. They say, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They think they've got him pinned. Jesus is in this no-win situation because what he could do is choose not to heal this man. And if he chooses not to heal this man, the crowds are going to kind of dissipate and Jesus is going to kind of be painted in a bad light, they think. Or he could heal the man on the Sabbath and he could be what they think is a Sabbath breaker. And so they're, they're sitting there clever. They bring this man to Jesus and Jesus once again flips the table on them. He says, you guys are foolish. You guys are hypocrites. If you were to have a beast that was to be caught in a well and their life was in danger, you would go and fix this. You would, you would go and remove this beast that is trapped. How much more value is this man's life? And he does what only the Son of God can do. And he goes and he heals this man on the Sabbath. And as a result, the crowds grow more and more as they follow this Jesus. And as a result, we see in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, that because of this interaction, this is a really kind of a crucial turning point in the gospel. We're going to see that Matthew 12, 14 tells us that the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus about how to destroy him. They're so envious of this Jesus. They hate what he teaches. They hate what he stands for. Their hearts are so hardened towards Jesus that whatever Jesus does, they are going to be against him. This interaction paints the Pharisees in a bad light. They are these ones that are kind of hypocrites. They are legalists. They are uncaring and they don't understand the kingdom of God and they don't understand Jesus as king. Well, the crowds, they continue to gather. And by the time we get to Matthew chapter 13, Jesus and his apostles have kind of made their way towards the Sea of Galilee. And we see that Jesus leaves a house, Matthew chapter 13, and the crowds are immense. They've kind of encompassed around Jesus. And so Jesus gets into a boat, kind of sets off into the sea, and he turns and he starts to teach. And he opens his mouth, and he teaches a parable. A parable about a farmer. No doubt, the apostles are looking at what Jesus is doing, and they are, like, almost angry that Jesus is missing an opportunity here. They're looking at Jesus, and they're, they're probably thinking, this is a perfect opportunity for you. Last time there was a great crowd around you. You, you, you delivered the, the greatest sermon of all time in the Sermon of the Mount. You spoke very clearly, and you spoke with this authority, and people marveled at your teaching. And you are here, and the crowds are around you, and you teach this parable, and it seems to fall on deaf ears. Jesus, what are you doing, they ask. You're, you're losing the crowd. What are you doing teaching in parables? 
The disciples are shocked. Surely they think that this is going to be a great opportunity for Jesus to finally announce him to be this Messiah that is here, that has arrived. That he's going to start teaching very clearly about the kingdom that he is coming to inaugurate. And instead he chooses to teach in a parable. Well, thankfully, they ask the question and Jesus gives them the answer. And if they are shocked that he teaches in parables, I guarantee you that they are actually shocked at what Jesus says in response to them. He gives them two reasons, and these reasons aren't all exhaustive. There's many reasons as to why Jesus chooses to teach in parables. But theologically speaking, there are two in particular that Jesus gives them. And these are the reasons that we're going to unpack. And let me tell you, they're not easy. They're a little bit difficult, and at first they kind of seem counterintuitive with us. And so as we go through this, I, I, I plead with you, please hang with Jesus to see what it is that he is trying to say. So let me give you the reasons, and then we're going to unpack it. Reason number one is that he taught in parables because in line with the rest of Scripture, Jesus' message is one that blinds, deafens, and hardens sinful hearts. So in line with the rest of Scripture, he chooses to teach in parables because in line with the rest of Scripture, his message is one that blinds, it deafens, and it hardens sinful hearts. And reason number two is that he taught in parables because in line with the rest of Scripture, Jesus' message reveals truths that were hidden in Scripture. Okay, so let's jump in. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to start with reading in verse 10. So if you guys will, please turn with me there. This is right after he teaches the parable of the sower. It says this, Then the disciples came and they said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not... Even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says this. You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear. In their eyes they see, in their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So Jesus, what he's doing here is he is setting up a contrast in this teaching. There is two different groups that he talks about. There's going to be one group that positively responds to parables, and there's going to be another group that negatively responds to parables. And what he does is he kind of sets that up in verses 10 and 11. So they ask the question in verse 10, but notice verse 11, he kind of tells them positively, the knowledge of the secrets have been given to you, positively speaking. But notice 11b, negatively But to them it has not been given. Positively, verse 12. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But negatively speaking, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so what we're going to see is he kind of introduces these two different groups, and then he kind of expounds on these. In verses 
13 through 15, he unpacks that negative group, that group that will respond negatively to these parables. And then verses 16 and 17, he kind of talks about the group that responds positively to parables. This is the outline. This is kind of the logical outline of what Jesus is doing in his teaching here. It's an argument that he is making. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack first the negative side of things, those that respond negatively. And what he does here is when he is giving an answer, Jesus gives a direct quotation from the book of Isaiah chapter 6. So I don't have it up here because it's a long chapter. So what I want you guys to do is kind of play Bible sword drill and turn back to Isaiah 6 because we need to understand the context of what Jesus is saying. So as you turn back there, Isaiah 6 comes on the heels of several chapters where Isaiah is denouncing Israel's hardness of heart. He's teaching that they are a sinful people. He says judgment is coming to them because of their idolatrous ways, chapter 2, verse 8. They are arrogant and proud, chapter 2, verse 12. They are proud of their sin and it's as disgusting as Sodom and Gomorrah is what he says in chapter 3. And in chapter 5, he pronounces these woes against Israel. Because of their arrogance, because of their sin, because of their hardness of heart, he says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And he pronounces these woes after woe after woe because they have been a sinful and rebellious people. And what makes this even more treacherous is that chapter 5 tells us that God has done everything for Israel. Israel is this choice vine. He has planted this vineyard. He has hewn them. He has gone and he has made sure that they had everything that they could ever want. And instead of responding and bearing fruits of righteousness and walking faithfully before God, they have been a people that have rebelled. And Isaiah says that you are those that produce wild grapes. That is useless. And so by the time chapter 6 arrives... The only hope that was kind of keeping Israel together, which is King Uzziah of Judah, dies. There's only one little bit of hope left. Everything was kind of falling apart, and this king was somewhat a righteous king, and he was kind of trying to lead his people righteously, and this king dies. And when this king dies, it is then that Isaiah receives this vision of the Lord, this famous vision that you guys have heard of. And so let's jump in. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, it says this. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's this majestic vision of God. He's in the temple and he's on the throne and Isaiah gets to see this vision of God and it's such a majestic thing that all Isaiah can see is the train of God's robe filling the temple with his glory. Verse 2, and above him stood the seraphim. These seraphim are angelic beings and they have six wings, it says here. With two, they covered their face. This God is so glorious and so holy that even these sinless angelic beings are covering their face as they peer upon God. And with two, they covered their feet. Think back to when Moses is there at the burning bush and God says, you are standing on holy ground. It's the same kind of vision. They are covering their feet because they are in the presence of this holy God. And with two, they flew. 
And notice what the, these beasts, these angelic beings are doing, verse 3. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of this glory. And they're proclaiming this awesomeness of God. And they're singing about his majestic nature. And notice verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. It's this incredible vision of God and his temple. These angelic beasts are proclaiming his glory. And as God is going to speak, as he opens his mouth, it is such a powerful voice that everything is rumbling. Notice what happens when Isaiah is confronted with the glory of God. Verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. King Uzziah is dead, but God appears to him, and he is in this vision before God. And even though he's in this vision before God, he sees that he is a finite being before this God. In the holiness of God, in the presence of God, he is only able to reflect on how in, or how finite and sinful he is before God. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, verse 6, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then in verse 8, we hear God speak for the first time in this vision. And it's almost like Isaiah is this kind of fly on the wall. This, this God is speaking, but he's not speaking to Isaiah at first. Isaiah is just there. He is this guy that has been cleaned from sin, but he is this finite creature before this God. And God is speaking to the heavenly council. And notice what it says in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. This isn't Isaiah responding in arrogance. A lot of times we think that, that well, there's no one else, God, here I am. I am your servant, send me. But the context of this passage shows us that Isaiah recognizes that he is a sinful being before God. And there's this humble approach that he has before God. He says, can you use me? Here, here I am, please, you, use me, send me to your people. And God says, Go. And notice what he tells them to do. He says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. How would you like to have that job given to you? Many of us don't like our jobs. <laughs> Many of us complain about our jobs. But how would you like for God to send you and commission you to do this? Would you like to be a pastor of a church like this? How would you like to be a part of a church plan like this? How many of us are chomping at the bit and saying, that's the kind of church I want to be at? Where people hear and they don't listen. They see, but they don't see. Their hearts are so blinded and hardened to God that they don't care about the message. In essence, what God is saying to Isaiah is go and proclaim the truth and no one is going to listen to you. 
Go and show them the awesomeness of God's glory, and no one is going to see. Their hearts are going to be so hardened to sin. There's not going to be repentance. Instead, there is only going to be judgment. Naturally, Isaiah asks the question, well, how long? How long, Lord? You know, you and I can endure certain things, difficult things for a period of time. And so Isaiah is asking the question, God, how long do you want me to do this? How long do you want me to go and proclaim this in verse 11? And God says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. Until the Lord removes people far away and there are many forsaken places in the midst of the land. And even when there are only one-tenth left in the land, it will be lied waste again. So it's your lifetime. You're going to go, and your ministry is going to be a lifetime-long ministry where you're teaching and you're preaching to a people that do not care. Their hearts are so hardened that they will not listen. Let's not forget why we're reading this passage in Isaiah. These are the very words that Jesus is quoting when he gives a response to his disciples about why it is that he is teaching in parables. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. That with these parables that he is going to teach... That as what happened with Isaiah in his ministry, the same thing is going to happen with some who hear the teaching of Jesus. There's going to be a negative impact. Jesus is going to go and teach. He's going to go and show. He's going to go and do. And rather than repent, people's hearts are going to be hardened to what Jesus does. They're going to be blinded at what he is doing. And they're going to be so deafened that though they hear the words of the parables, they are not going to truly listen. Jesus says something similar elsewhere in John. John chapter 8, verse 45, Jesus speaking with some of his opponents says this. He says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, although I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. He says, no, because I tell you the truth, it is the very me telling you the truth, you are going to not believe what it is that I am saying to you. In other words, for some people throughout history and certain times and certain places, that it is the very proclamation of the truth of God's word that is going to harden their hearts. It is the truth of the message that they are going to be offended at. It is the truth that blinds them to the reality. Perhaps you've experienced this with a friend, with a family member, or perhaps even a stranger at a coffee shop. You have a conversation with them. Conversation is going pretty well. And you start really trying to bridge that into a gospel conversation. And you start talking about the nature of sin. You start talking about the reality of righteousness and unrighteousness. And the reality that God is holy and we are unholy. And you talk to them about their need for repentance. And the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone. And what happens is no matter how well you couch that. No matter how humbly you approach that conversation. Or how lovingly you try to have that conversation. It is the very truth that offends them. 
It blinds them. It hardens them. It guarantees their unbelief. They might have thought about Jesus, but as they hear more about this Jesus, they become hardened to what it is that you are saying. And that conversation that was going pretty well gets pretty awkward pretty quick, doesn't it? It goes downhill pretty fast in our estimation. Going back to Isaiah, in effect, what God is calling Isaiah to do then is to go and harden people's hearts. That seems counterintuitive to us, but that's exactly what God is doing. He says, go and preach, and they're not going to listen. Go and show, and they're not going to see. Their hearts are going to be so hardened. He says, go and preach, and you are going to go, and you're going to harden people's hearts so that they receive judgment. Not because Isaiah is a bad preacher. Not because he gets up there and he's kind of fumbling through a sermon and he doesn't know how to say and communicate truth. No, it is by the very proclamation of truth that their hearts are hardened. By preaching these parables, we are told that Jesus fulfills this prophecy in line with Isaiah. I told you guys to turn to Matthew 13 and I didn't, so let me turn there real quick. Read what he says in verses 14 through 15. Matthew chapter 13. He says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. That says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes have, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. This is a fulfillment. The pattern that Jesus is fulfilling. There's this pattern of unbelief that we see when the proclamation of truth happens in Scripture that sometimes for those that are listening, rather than stirring up hearts of repentance, what it does is it actually calluses their heart and drives them to more sin and rebellion. Like, that can't be true. Think about the context that Jesus tells these parables in. Think about these Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to in the crowds. No matter what he does or how he does it, these Pharisees are adamantly opposed to Jesus. He casts out demons, and what do they say about him? <laughs> he's he's demon-possessed. The only way he does this is because of the power of Beelzebub. It's because he is Satan's uh, whatever, Satan's minion that he's able to do this. He heals people of all kinds of diseases and infirmities and what do they say they condemn him for being a sabbath breaker he starts preaching about the miraculous truth of salvation and forgiveness in his name and what do they do they condemn him as a blasphemer as the crowds gather to listen they're intrigued by what he says these these pharisees are so hardened to jesus that they are trying to find out a way to silence and kill him there's a pattern of unbelief throughout Scripture. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5 real quick with me. The Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 verses 11 and 12. And he's speaking of his disciples. And he's speaking of what awaits his disciples. And he says this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Why? Not because they deserve it, but falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so, what did they do? They persecuted the prophets who were before you. All you have to do is turn back to the prophets and read through the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and read through those minor prophets. And every time they spoke, there was a people that would respond in rebellion about the truth that it is that they listened to. Turn with me real quick to Romans chapter 1. We see this pattern throughout the scriptures. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There's this pattern of unbelief that when the truth is proclaimed that at least for some, what this truth does is it blinds people to the reality of God. It hardens their hearts. It deafens their ears. Their eyes might see, but they truly don't see. So the apostles asked Jesus, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus responds, at least in part, so that one of the reasons is that consistent with the rest of Scripture, that his message in these parables have a blinding and they have a deafening and a hardening effect on those that are steeped in sin. Now, these parables conceal even more the truth that they are hardened against. But Jesus gives a second reason for why he teaches parables and as we unpack the second reason, let's jump down to verses 34 and 35 in Matthew 13. And we'll come back to 16 and 17 a little bit later. The second reason that Jesus teaches in parables is because his message reveals truths hidden in Scripture. 34 says this. All these things Jesus said excuse me, to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fill what was spoken by the prophets. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Once again, in giving a reason for why he teaches in parables, Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage. And this comes from Psalm 78. In particular, Psalm 78 verse 2. And this is a historical psalm. And these historical psalms have a really cool and unique purpose. What, Jesus, what God does in these psalms is that he kind of retells Israel's history in a way where he's kind of highlighting lessons to teach them. He kind of repackages their history to highlight specific truths to them. And the reason he does this is because all of us have selective memory in terms of history, don't we? So think back on your own kind of understanding of history. Think back on a friendship that you had or a relationship that you had or a job that kind of went sour. 
You think back on that and you tell your side of the story and that's what it is. It's your side of the story. It's selective. You don't have all the details. You, you say what you have, but you don't know all things. Or as we reminisce about something about the good old days, right? A lot of times we reminisce and we reminisce with rose-colored glasses, right? Think back on your childhood. Sometimes you think of those things as better than they truly were. Or perhaps you think on things and you actually remember them worse than they actually were. By nature, history is very selective. It is not exhaustive. And inevitably, we, are, we have blind spots in our history. And that's exactly what's happening here in Psalm 78. God rearranges Israel's history to reveal these blind spots. They had this tendency to kind of think pompously about themselves. We are God's chosen ones. We are the ones that are sons of Abraham. We are the ones that had Moses. We had the prophets. We had the law. We had the priesthood. We had the sacrificial system. And so they kind of thought pompously about them. And so God gives them a dose of a reality check with retelling this history. He says, yeah, you're my chosen people. But throughout the psalm, he goes and he says, you've had this this pattern of rebellion. Kind of brings up the facts before them. Think back on your history. Think back on these details. And he kind of keeps bringing up the details that they have been blinded to. But before he does that, notice what the psalmist does in verse 2 and 3. If you guys turn back to Psalm 78, it says this. Before he kind of retells this history, this is really important because this is the theme that Jesus is actually doing with these parables. Psalm 78 says, I will declare wise saying, I will speak of mysteries from the past, things we have heard and known and our ancestors have passed down to us. And so as he speaks about these things, he says he's going to speak about mysteries from the past. But yet at the same time, notice what he says. These things are things that they have heard and things that they have known. They're things that have been passed down. And so the question is, if these are things that they've heard and known, things that have been passed down from generation to to generation, How exactly can these things be considered mysteries? And the answer is that even though these Jews had the clear data before them, they were kind of blinded by their own blind spots in history. They they hadn't thought through all the ramifications of their actions. They hadn't really seen all of their, their past failures and organized in such a way that shows their pattern of rebellion and their need for repentance. And so the data's there. It's the same information that had been passed down from generation to generation, but there is a mystery because they were blind to the reality of what their history actually said. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing himself with the teaching of parables. As he's going back to the Old Testament's, He's going back to the data of the Old Testament, if you will, the verses and passages of the Old Testament, and he kind of retells it in a way to reveal the mysteries of God. Turn with me, Matthew 13, 10 and 11. Notice what he says. Disciples ask the question, why do you teach in parables? And he answers them. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. What is, what is this secrets of the kingdom of heaven? Some of your verses might say the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. What are these mysteries? 
It's not the mysterious things about the kingdom of heaven. That that term mystery is used about 28 times in the New Testament. And almost every single time that it's used, it is used in reference to things that were once hidden, but have now been revealed. And so that's what Jesus is doing with these parables. He's saying, I am going to reveal to you then the things that were once hidden in the past, but are now disclosed through my teaching. These things are hidden, yet they're hidden in plain sight in the biblical passages that he expounds upon. And these ideas and these themes that we see in the Old Testament, the data's there. He's not bringing reference to new scripture passages. He's going to use these familiar passages with them to teach them the truths that they have been missing all along. You might be thinking, well, what does this look like? How does, how does this happen? Well, we're going to see this as we go through each of these parables. Jesus is teaching and revealing mysteries about the kingdom of heaven. But let me just give you a few examples so you can kind of see what it is that Jesus is saying here. There's one example where they, the Jews had this misconception that God would only show mercy and forgiveness to those that were upright in heart. That the salvation was only reserved for those who were Jews walking in covenant faithfulness with the law. And so if you think back on the parable of the prodigal son. If you remember the context when Jesus teaches that parable, there's Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners and they're gathered with him. And what are the Pharisees doing? They are sitting there and they're grumbling at Jesus. And Jesus teaches this parable about how this undeserving, unrighteous sinner of a son who is walking in rampant sin is the one who receives this abundance of mercy of God's forgiveness. And Jesus' point to these Pharisees is that with this new covenant, that even the most wretched sinners who turn to faith and repentance, including tax collectors, including Pharisees, and yes, including Gentiles, will be saved. This was something that Jews didn't even understand at that time. The apostles didn't understand. It's not until Acts chapter 10 that they understand this concept. It's hidden, it's in the text. Jesus goes to the Old Testament and there's passages there that kind of reflect this teaching. And yet, what does he do through the parable? He reveals it completely to his apostles. There's another example where he is teaching and one of his disciples comes. Peter asks him, he says, how much am I supposed to forgive? Guys, I know know we're supposed to forgive. Am I supposed to forgive my neighbor up to seven times? You guys remember Jesus' response. He teaches them, no, no, let me teach you something about forgiveness. And he teaches a parable. And there's this shocking mystery that Jesus is revealing through this parable at the end. He looks at Peter and he says, guess what? If you don't forgive, then you will not be forgiven. This is a mystery to these followers. They don't understand the concept of forgiveness. They think they've got it. And what Jesus does is he unpacks these mysteries from the Old Testament and he's revealing them through his parables. The greatest mystery of all, perhaps, is the very nature and character of the Messiah. You think about the context of when Jesus comes. These Jews rightly understood and perceived that they should be looking for a Messiah. And they rightly understood that this Messiah was going to be a Davidic king. They go back to passages like 2 Samuel 7. 
They understand that this Messiah is going to establish a kingdom that's going to be just and righteous. And they turn to passages like Micah chapter 5. But none of them. None of them put two and two together that this Messiah, this Davidic Messiah, is also going to be that suffering servant that Clay read from us from Isaiah chapter 53. None of them do. Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, and when he's having a conversation with Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, he says, Jesus, you are the Son of God, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And Peter says, blessed are you. But it's not just a few verses later that when Jesus is teaching about his need to go and suffer in Jerusalem, you guys know the story. He says, no, Jesus, you've got it wrong. Messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs don't suffer, and he rebukes Jesus when Jesus is teaching and revealing the mystery of the kingdom that he is going to be a suffering servant. And Jesus calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. This concept of the Messiah is this greatest mystery that Jesus is doing. Yes, they understand that the Messiah has come, but it, no Jew had it all together. It's not until after the resurrection that that happens. Just fast forward to the end of the Gospels. Jesus is crucified, and what are his disciples doing? They're in the upper room. What are they doing there? They're not sitting there like kids on Christmas saying, ah, we can't wait for tomorrow. We're gonna, he's going to prove everybody wrong. No, they're sitting there in fear. And the ladies come and tell them that Jesus is not in the tomb, and they're confused as to what's going on. They, they run to the tomb to try to figure out what's going on. It's a mystery that they don't understand. None of them had put it together. The texts were there, though. But it's not until Jesus comes to reveal these mysteries of the kingdom of heaven that they get it. And it's not until hindsight, after they look at the resurrection, that they understand it. And that's why Jesus tells them in Matthew 13, verse 16, he said, Blessed are your eyes, for you see, and your eyes hear, or sorry, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus teaches parables, and for some, these parables, they have an effect of hardening the hearts. It blinds them to the truth. It blinds them to the reality. It blinds them to the salvation of the kingdom. But to some, they hear it, and God graciously opens their eyes. And as they see the stories, they see the meaning behind the stories. And as Jesus unpacks these mysteries about the kingdom of God, even though it condemns them in their sin, they're not hardened to the condemnation that is brought to them. Their hearts are stirred up for faith and repentance. And Jesus looks and he says, for those that hear, and that is your response, blessed are you. It's a gift. They don't see because they have a superior intellect. They don't hear because they just have ears to hear. They hear because God has graciously shown them the truth about the mysteries of the kingdom. So you might be thinking, okay, so what? 
There's these two reasons that Jesus gives us. Why does this matter? So what? What what should we do with this? Well, in one, I think it helps us understand the parables. I think it helps us understand why some people turn to repentance and some are hardened by them. But I think there's some encouragement for us too. I think for you, at least for me, this should be something that encourages you while you share the truth with others. I don't know about you guys, but there's been so many times where I've tried to share the gospel with somebody. And in my human finite experience, I look back on that and I'm like, man, I butchered it. Man, this conversation did not go well, right? It was going well. I'm having this conversation and all of a sudden it's like this thing escalated and this person wants to like punch me across this table. And I think back on it, I'm like, man, maybe if I said this, or maybe if I did this, or maybe if I try to do something different. And truth, of the, truth be told is all of us are imperfect, and none of us gives a perfect gospel presentation. But sometimes it's the very truth that we proclaim that causes the offense, not the person that proclaims it. And sometimes we get so scared that people are going to respond so poorly to us that we kind of shell up and we don't share the gospel. I don't know about you, that's been my experience. And so this should encourage us that as Jesus is giving the reason for his teaching in the parables, he says, sometimes it's the truth that's just going to, it's going to cause that person to respond in wrath and anger and hardness of heart. So don't be scared of it. In fact, chances are if you are sharing the gospel appropriately, you're going to probably have more interactions that go that way than people that respond in faith and repentance. Think about it this way. The Pharisees rejected Jesus not because he was a bad communicator, not because he was poor at showing people about the kingdom of God, but it was because the truth that Jesus proclaimed stirred up hardness of hearts. Second reason, and we'll finish with this, is that as we go through these parables, Jesus looks at us and he says, blessed are you who see and hear. Blessed are you who have eyes to see and blessed are you that have ears to hear. Our understanding of the, the parables is not because of our intellect. It's by God's grace alone. And so as we approach this study, my encouragement to you is go to the Lord in humility. Seek his face. Go to him humbly and ask him to reveal the truth. Ask the spirit to reveal the understanding that is proper of what Jesus is trying to communicate to you. Don't go in confidence. Don't go thinking that you're all that. That's what the Pharisees were all about. And when they heard the parables, they responded in hatred. And instead, we should be those that ask God, give me ears to hear. Give me eyes to see. Help me understand these mysteries of the kingdom of heaven anew. Some of these parables are so familiar that we think we got them and we get there and we miss out on what Jesus is actually saying. Please humble yourselves and ask God to let you study these things anew. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your goodness. Lord, thank you that you are a God that is just so incredible. Father, as we think back on Scripture, what you're doing with Scripture, 
Father, revealing truth from these old passages that Jesus has come to fulfill. You are such an incredible God. You're so gracious to reveal these things that were once hidden about the kingdom of heaven. Father, we praise you that in Jesus all of these things are fulfilled. God, our questions are answered about salvation. Things that prophets long to see and that they wrote about and were just dying to understand through Christ. We now understand them. Father, so thank you so much for giving us eyes to hear, or eyes to see and ears to hear. God, I pray that this study through the parables would be a blessing to us. Father, I pray that you would humble us. God, that we would be those that go and proclaim faithfully what it is that you have done through your son. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.